I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Jack Smith is ready to indict Trump on between 30 and 45 more counts. And he is preparing to indict several of Trump's lawyers from the fake elector scheme. And one of them is, despite his voluntary interview and proffer to turn on everybody else in a bid to win Citizen of the Week award, Rudy Giuliani. That is all from the British newspaper that correctly nailed the Miami indictments two days before they were finally handed up. CNN adds that the main Trump campaign official in charge of the fake electors will cut an immunity deal and will testify for the special prosecutor. But the headlines running up the score on Trump to as many as 79 counts and making America's mayor into America's co-defendant, they are coming from Andrew Feinberg in The Independent again. Feinberg writes that the DOJ, quote, is prepared to seek indictments against multiple figures in Trump's orbit and may yet bring additional charges against the ex-president in the coming weeks. Although its sources are not clear if those charges would come in a superseding indictment in Florida or they might be filed in a different jurisdiction. And we have already discussed the possibility of Trump being indicted in New Jersey for the Trump confession tape, plus all the crimes still on the table in D.C. There is one intriguing new twist to the seemingly trivial question of where to indict Trump next. It will, quoting the story, 
depend in part on whether they feel the Trump-appointed district judge overseeing the case against him in the Southern District of Florida, Eileen Cannon, is giving undue deference to Trump. As to the hapless Rudy Giuliani, Feinberg's source says that despite the ex-mayor's proffer offered to prosecutors, Rudy will, quote, most definitely face at least some charges from Jack Smith's office, dating to his actions in the interval between the election and January 6th. No other specifics and no names of other lawyers to be indicted mentioned. But we know from Wednesday's reporting that Giuliani was asked about, Jeff, can I put my pants on Clark? And John Eastman and Boris Epstein and Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis and Jack Walenchik were mentioned in different contexts. It would be the CNN scoop that would presumably explain the independent scoop. CNN's story is that Mike Roman, who was in essence the desk officer inside the Trump campaign, responsible for coordinating all the fake electors, and whom the New York Times reported a week ago had been offered his own limited immunity deal in exchange for his testimony against the others, has accepted that immunity deal. Jack Smith's people, in fact, are apparently jonesing so big time for Roman's info to the degree that CNN says Roman may not even have to go before the grand jury. He may talk instead directly to the prosecutors and only the prosecutors in an interview format. So what is next in this world in which we struggle out of one nightmare only to realize we have merely awakened into a different nightmare? How about this? Trump showed that secret map to the co-chair of a lobbying firm which has taken millions from at least three Chinese tech firms closely linked to the Chinese government. The I should not be showing the map map. The so don't get too close map. Wednesday night, ABC News identified the person Trump showed that classified map to as Susie Wiles, a Trump advisor and Trump campaign official and his potential 2024 campaign chair. Last night, the New York Post of all news outlets identified Susie Wiles as the co-chairman of Mercury Public Affairs, a lobbying mouthpiece for at least three really bad really dangerous Chinese firms, including Alibaba, the online retailer and web services company that is actually partially owned by the Chinese government, and which the Post says Susie Wiles's company Mercury is still receiving payments from. So Trump was explaining a military operation to a political action committee representative. He said it was not going well. And to clarify, he showed this Wiles a classified map of a foreign nation, a map he had stolen, and she is co-chairperson of a company that receives money that the Chinese government washes through Alibaba. And it gets worse. The New York Post also reported Wiles' company lobbied for Hikvision, was paid more than $1,700,000 just last year, and Hikvision makes the video surveillance equipment that the Chinese government, quote, used to locate and detain Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province. And the co-chair of their U.S. lobbying firm was shown a classified map of another country by Trump. Post makes sure to emphasize that all government records show that Susie Wiles herself did not 
personally lobby for these Chinese firms, which would have a little more meaning and which would be a little bit more reassuring if, you know, she wasn't co-chair of the company that did lobby for them. And we could not collectively have imagined a worse person for Trump to show that map to or show anything he stole too, because there's even more somehow. Susie Wiles' company serviced yet a third nightmarish Chinese outfit, and it only severed its relationship with that company last month. This one is a telecommunications firm called Yaylink, and two years ago, Senator Van Holland of Maryland wrote to Commerce Secretary Raimondo to report a security analytics company had found Yaylink phones include software that could secretly record calls and secretly track the web browsing done on local networks and secretly transfer all of that private information back to Yaylink headquarters in China. As the New York Post noted, China, where companies must comply with any government requests to hand over information related to national security. And when in August or September 2021, Trump showed Susie Wiles a classified American military map of a country where it was not going well, and the immediate speculation was that was a map of Afghanistan, she was the boss of the lobbying company for one Chinese company co-owned by the Chinese government, another Chinese company that supplies the Chinese government with video location equipment it uses to round up minorities, and a third Chinese company that makes a tool with which the Chinese government can spy on ordinary citizens anywhere in the world, including in this country, because if you order now, you can have a Yealink phone on your desk by next Monday. It is mind-boggling, and not just because of how wantonly Trump compromised American security to a person who runs a company lobbying the U.S. government on behalf of three outlets that are directly utilized by the Chinese government. And it's mind-boggling not just because this security breach was revealed by a Murdoch paper— It's mind-boggling because one of the tenets of Trump's undermining of our society has been his continual stoking of anti-Asian sentiment and fear and violence and his attempt to brand anybody who disagrees with him as an agent of the Chinese government, except he's showing a classified map he stole to somebody who comes infuriatingly close to that exact description of agent of the Chinese government. And ultimately, it is mind-boggling because of this. Even if Trump had some sort of right to show her that map, or even if he had never shown her any classified materials, what the hell is Susie Wiles riddled with connections at one remove to the Chinese government doing near the top of the 2016 campaign of the eventual president of the United States? What is she doing now as a de facto leader of his 2024 campaign? And what is she doing as his prospective campaign manager? We have crushed the concept of the Manchurian candidate into the ground from overuse. Here, instead, we have the Manchurian campaign manager. And if you'd like it all ratcheted up one more notch still, the New York Post is happy to oblige. Quote, Susie could put Trump away for years in just one minute of testimony to Jack Smith, a rival GOP operative told the Post. She's got Trump by the balls, which means she can name her price for her loyalty and Trump can't say no. Unquote. 
Who the hell knows where that comes from? The Post does not explain. It's the Post. But it just adds to yet one more confirmation that however bad you think it is, with Trump, it is always worse. Which would describe the arrest of a man named Taylor Toronto yesterday. He was picked up near the home of President Barack Obama. Taylor Toronto is a January 6th participant who has been advertising that he's been living in a van near the D.C. jailhouse in some sort of twisted solidarity with the other insurrectionists. Trump, of course, recently posted a screenshot showing what was purportedly the address of President Obama. Toronto reposted it, adding, quote, got them surrounded, unquote. In short, Dementia J. Trump doxed the Obamas. When Jack Smith hits him with those additional dozens of counts reported by The Independent, this time I want this scumbag denied bail. The other story you know about, the Supreme Court overturned affirmative action in at least elite universities. There are some mitigating factors that understandably are not the top part of this story. The ruling is in large part limited to the biggest schools. One analysis of acceptance rates at 1,364 four-year American colleges and universities showed that the number of them that admit fewer than 10% of all applicants is 17 Out of 1,364, the total that admitted fewer than 20%, 46. Most American students get to go where they want to go. And the idea voiced by the John Roberts opinion and emphasized by President Biden that any applicant anywhere can go around the ban by devoting part of their application essay to their personal experience with race and racism. It is an alternative, though it is hardly a happy one. As Toni Morrison pointed out, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being distraction. This solution sounds like the old don't ask, don't tell in the military. 17-year-old kids now have to jerry-rig a method to correct the imbalance in this country so ingrained and so pervasive that 45 years ago this month, when I started my internship at a New York City television station, it never occurred to me not once that I had any kind of advantage, let alone a racial advantage, by the simple fact that my parents had enough money that I could take the internship and didn't have to spend those hours working, even though my own father had to turn down a college scholarship because his parents didn't have enough money and he did have to spend those hours working. It looked briefly like there would be another silver lining to this when President Biden spoke to the nation after the ruling, and particularly with his answer to the one question that was shouted at him after his remarks. The Congressional Black Caucus said the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. It is not a normal court. There is a solution to that. Within the hour, President Biden was asked about that solution, and he dropped the ball. Quote, if we start the process of trying to expand the court, we're going to politicize it, maybe forever, in a way that is not healthy, that you can't get back. 
Mr. President, the court is utterly and irredeemably politicized now. It is not healthy now. It has reached forever corruption levels now. Its reputation cannot be gotten back now. You either have to expand it or remove it. Goddamn, Biden was so close. But moreover, and sitting over this like a vampire cloud, is the simple hypocrisy of people like Clarence Thomas and a parable that did dawn on me in my youth, even if my accidental privilege did not dawn on me then. It is the parable of the lifeboat. And probably for 40 years, I have believed that America and probably all of mankind divides into just two groups, in essence. You are a passenger on a liner at sea, and you are hundreds of miles from land, and the boat suddenly sinks. There are explosions and horrors and death, and suddenly you're underwater, and then just as suddenly you bob to the surface, and incredibly, next to you, not only are you alive, but there floating is a perfectly undamaged lifeboat. It is huge. There are oars. There are provisions. You pull yourself onto it with surprising ease, and then and there, you must join one of the two and only two groups in the world. If you are in the first group, your mind crowds with calculations. How many people can I fit into this boat with me? Should they all be women and children, or do I need to make sure there's several big men in here too so they can help me row the damn thing? Do I, should I need, do I have to get a crew member? Because I need somebody with experience on the sea. How long will all that food last? Could we make it last longer than it should if we skipped a day here and there? Those are the thoughts in one group. The thoughts in the other group, look, my boat is here and I have all this room to myself and look at all of my food and best of all, I have these great big oars so I can kill anybody who tries to climb out of the water and get into my boat. Clarence Thomas is a member of that second group. It's his effing boat. Of course, affirmative action must be ended. What the hell do you think those oars are for? messing around with the format today, so now time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The runner-up, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Prime Minister took a photograph with another conservative member of the British Parliament, Daniel Kaczynski, who promptly posted the photo. The Prime Minister is 5 feet 7 inches tall. Mr. Kaczynski is... Six feet nine. If you have not seen this photo, A, go and look at it. B, it looks like a publicity still for a ventriloquist's act. That's not hyperbole. That's what it looks like. 
The runners-up, the fine folks at Fox Quote News, unquote, they responded to the report that the president uses a CPAP machine for sleep apnea by mocking his illness. Laura Ingram suggested it's, quote, a scam, and it's a way to say, no, he's not mentally impaired. He just needs to get a good night's sleep. That's Laura Ingram. And I'm guessing, therefore, that her alcoholism, she once had 20 drinks in my presence in one night on a date. I guess that wasn't a real thing either. And that was just her covering up her mental impairment. The anchors of Fox's The Five, which is named because it is the collective IQ of the hosts, were also subhuman on the illness. The guy is clueless, said Janine Pirro, who once held up her own press conference at which she announced she was running for senator from New York for a measured 32 seconds because she had lost page 10 of her speech and she asked everybody in the room if they had seen page 10 of her speech. Posse can't breathe half the time. Just for the record, here are the methods four of the five, five hosts with the five total IQ used to get to sleep. Uh, Jesse Waters, Tucker Carlson's replacement who just lost Carlson's audience by appearing at a Ron DeSantis event on Thursday. He just hits himself in the head with a ball peen hammer. That works. Greg Gutt. Greg Gutt keeps tilting his head over until it exceeds the 90 degree level and then it falls off. Dana Perino. Well, no brain, no pain. Piro? Ripple. But our winner, New York City Mayor Eric Adams. You know Eric Adams. Last summer he said, I thank God I'm the mayor right now. And last spring he said, there is no way God created me for this moment if he did not believe this was my moment. I'll read that one again. It's a wonderful tautology. There is no way God created me for this moment if he did not believe this was my moment. Well, Mayor Adams has actually topped both of those inane, unbalanced-sounding remarks. At a town hall in Washington Heights Wednesday night, a longtime rent control activist went off on Mayor Adams for not fulfilling promises he made to support specific rent control guidelines, possibly because Adams is himself a landlord. And in response to this, Mayor Adams lost his mind. Okay, first, if you're going to ask a question, don't point at me and don't be disrespectful to me. I'm the mayor of this city and treat me with the respect I would I deserve to be treated. I'm speaking to you as an adult. Don't stand in front like you treated someone that's on the plantation that you own. Give me the respect I deserve and engage in a conversation up here in Washington Heights. Treat me with the same level of respect I treat you. So don't be pointing at me. Don't be disrespectful to me. Speak with me as an adult because I'm a grown man. I walked into this room as a grown man, and I'm going to walk out of this room as a grown man. I answered your question. That diatribe in which Adams compared the rent control advocate to a slave owner was directed at an 84-year-old woman named Jeannie Dubnow, who has spent five decades pushing to help New Yorkers of all races and ethnicities to be able to live here despite the exorbitant rents. She's also a microbiologist at Rutgers University, and she is a Holocaust survivor. Her parents fled Germany, then they fled Belgium, then they fled France and came here. Mayor Adams, trying to get back at her, went immediately to the race card to attack her in public. 
Mayor Adams is an embarrassment to this city. He is an embarrassment to the Democratic Party. He is an embarrassment to New York. And worst of all, after his last two years of petulant, self-absorbed, idiotic behavior, when he shouts at an 84-year-old woman, I'm a grown man, my first response is, exactly what evidence do you have for that statement, sir? Because you have behaved consistently like an unloved child. Mayor Eric Adams of New York, he won't do this, of course, but he should resign his office. This city deserves better, and almost anybody would be better. Eric Adams, today's worst person in the world. Also of note here, if you have not heard, we have begun a YouTube edition of this podcast. It features what is, frankly, an adorable animated little KO and some spectacular oscillator graphics. And the soundtrack is the podcast. It's just the podcast with some video attached to it. But if you prefer to watch me read these scripts, except not really because that's an animated me, rather than just listening to me read these scripts, it's available now starting each weekday at 8 a.m. Eastern. We started the YouTube edition last Monday just in time to bring in the monthly total of downloads and full video views of this series to approximately 1,700,000 for the month of June. It was just January when we were celebrating crossing for the first time the download milestone of 1 million. So 1,700,000 is more. I thank you kindly. Again, tell the others. Speaking of last January, it turns out the last time I took three consecutive days off was the Christmas New Year's holiday. So I'm going to go sit down before I fall down. This is the 239th episode of this podcast since it debuted last August 1st. That, too, is more. I'm going to take off next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and schedule the next countdown for Thursday, July 5th. Have a happy fireworks day. As always, if there is a bulletin, there will be a bulletin edition. I mean, what could possibly break between now and then? What with Trump showing classified maps to a lobbyist for China and Jack Smith readying 45 more counts against Trump? I mean, what could possibly happen? I'm sure I'll get my three days off this time. As to the rest of this edition of Countdown, I'm mailing it in. Things I promised not to tell is about the day Joe Biden took me to lunch to ask my advice about public speaking. And it is still Fridays with Thurber, so let me again read you his most harrowing story, the one that is basically about Trump, even though he wrote it in 1931, 15 years before the world was blighted by Trump's birth. Hey, look, I'm following textbook both sidesism. A Biden story means I also have to have a Trump story. That's next. This is Countdown. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Uh, you know, this is Countdown with, uh, you know, Keith Olbermann. Early in 2007, my phone rang at MSNBC headquarters in New Jersey. The senator would like to take you to lunch the next time he's in New York. He needs your advice. Would you be interested? It was Joe Biden's press guy. My first reaction was to ask if they had called the wrong number. My next reaction was to make sure this was not some sort of policy question, because as a news anchor and commentator for MSNBC, it did not seem appropriate to offer advice to a candidate for his party's presidential nomination. And <laughs> doesn't that seem quite right now, Sean Hannity? No, I was told it was more technical, more about communications, no policy. My antique standards satisfied, I said, sure. They gave me a couple of dates. They suggested, given his schedule, the best place to eat would be a restaurant in Manhattan. And it turned out it happened to be about 45 seconds from my home. So the day and hour arrived, March 27th, 2007. And I made it to the restaurant all the way down there, 45 seconds from my home. I sat down and moments later, in came the senator from Delaware and his press guy. He had the big welcoming smile and equally big welcoming handshake that you may have seen from back when candidates could still go greet the people in the crowd. He reminded me that we had met briefly when he was in Los Angeles for the 2000 Democratic Convention and happened to be staying in the hotel there in which I lived. Senator Biden then said some nice things about my days in sports and particularly about the commentaries I had begun to do the previous summer on MSNBC. Those special comments, he said, with first a smile and then a whistle. There was then and there remains now almost no space between the public Joe Biden of the campaign or the presidency and the guy who talks informally to some knucklehead off the streets, which in this story is me. The word malarkey was used during our lunch, and I remember that particularly because, as I told him, I went to grammar school with a kid named Malarkey. And he was delighted by that. He said he assumed we gave the fellow a hard time. And I said, yeah, but not because of his name. None of us third graders knew what malarkey meant. Why'd you give him a hard time then, Biden asked. It was the third grade, I said. Everybody gave everybody a hard time. He liked that answer. But back to the point of the lunch. 
your language in these special comments, he said. In those days, people often brought up my language. See, I used to tell President Bush to shut the hell up, only because they wouldn't let me use the other word. And some of the events of that presidency so infuriated me that I would actually redden on camera, and I don't redden in a sauna. Once, my high school history teacher, a distinguished and elegant man whose nine older siblings had been born in Vienna and who had the courtliness, which that implies, mentioned the language of the special comments, and I thought I was in for it. He, Walter Schneller, told me on the day I had graduated that my plans to be a sportscaster were very nice, and he was sure I would go and do that, but that he was also sure that I would wind up in politics someday, either as reporter or combatant, and I told him I was flattered, but he was crazy. Mr. Schneller was the one who, years later, was put in charge of the school's surprisingly generous fund for bringing in speakers to address the student body. And he was very annoyed by the fact that for decades, all of the speakers had either looked like Hugh Seide, the columnist for Time magazine, or they had been Hugh Seide, the columnist for Time magazine. He began scouring the Northeast for anybody smart who might have a diverse background, and that's how he happened to be driving to the railroad station at Tarrytown, New York, one morning in 1991 to meet the train that carried that day's guest speaker, an editor of the Harvard Law review named Barack Obama. His last words to Obama were, I'm sure you're going to go very far. So Mr. Schneller and I were talking about the commentaries, again about 2006 or 7, and he said about the language, and I braced myself and preemptively apologized. No, no, he said urgently, you missed my point entirely. I am amazed that your language is so restrained. If I were speaking, I'd have called Mr. Bush a... And thereupon, Mr. Schneller made reference to somebody's mother. So, when Joe Biden asked about the language I used, I was wary, but he followed it by saying that it was kind of why he had asked me to lunch. I watch those commentaries you do, and people send me the video, and my staffers tell me about them. And every time I think the same thing. Here you are expressing anger, but as close as it comes to the line, you never cross it. I say to my staff, folks, is he too angry for you? And they say, no, just right. So here's my question, and then we can enjoy this great lunch here. When I'm passionate about something and I speak on the Senate floor or anywhere else, I get told my, by my friends and my enemies, you're too angry. And when I really am angry, they all say, you're really too angry. And here Joe Biden laughed. Now, you, you go on TV, far larger audience, far longer speeches, and people say, that Alderman guy, he's righteously indignant. And now, with a mixture of laughter, astonishment, and curiosity, he said, me, I'm angry. You, you're righteously indignant. How do you do that? How do you do it, man? Can you tell me? Without thinking, I replied, you have been in the Senate for how long now, Senator? 34 years? He nodded. And you're only just asking this question now? The words were barely out of my mouth when I froze. This was not a friend or a colleague who would take the little joking jab I had just thrown in the way in which I intended. This was a politician. Politicians may have senses of humor, but very few have a sense of humor about themselves. In that split second, I assumed Joe Biden might get up and leave. 
and he was silent for a moment, and then the corners of his mouth turned up, and to my great relief, he burst into laughter. He rocked back into his chair. He slapped the table with a palm. My God, that's funny. More laughter. My God, it's true. Louder laughter. I don't mind telling you I have loved him ever since. I didn't think I had much advice for Senator Biden, but as we talked about this topic, he asked me follow-up questions that made me analyze for the first time some of the processes I used when writing and reading on television. I'd never thought of them before because I'd never had lunch with Joe Biden before. I will not bore you with the full results of the dissection of the process of turning anger into righteous indignation. The most valuable conclusion was the oldest one in the book. I always wrote late at night while fully angry, and then in the morning I would take things out of the script, usually the juicier adjectives. Whatever anger was left was only the most intense and the most justifiable. And if you present it 24 hours after you have written it, you'll be in control of the anger. Your anger will not be in control of you. Shorter version, sleep on it. I saw the senator next in August of 2007. Democratic primary debate, the AFL-CIO candidates forum officially. Soldier Field, Chicago. It was outdoors. 95 degrees. 95% humidity, threat of killer thunderstorms. Obama, Clinton, Biden, Dodd, Richardson, Kucinich, Edwards, and the moderator, me. There are photos of this, Joe Biden and I walking towards each other, hands extended for a greeting. And I remember it clearly, he is literally asking me if I've noticed that he's been trying to turn his anger into righteous indignation, and he's asking me if I thought he'd succeeded. Well, he did not succeed in that debate. He actually came over to me during the commercial break and told me what he was going to do when we came back. And I told him, don't do that. And he did it anyway. And it looked bad. And later he let me know I was right and he was wrong. And since then, I can't recall him being angry, certainly not inappropriately angry, not even in those debates with that goddamn madman. His words were harsh. The tone was less so perfect a plus but it occurs to me in all the analysis of all the changes in joe biden since day one in 1973 or even the vice presidency nobody touches on this one thing as late as 15 years ago he seemed to be a hothead when was the last time he was accused of that i'm not saying i had anything to do with that but two years in and he's not even accused of being a hothead it's an awfully nice change, isn't it? I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. To the Master, the work of James Thurber. There is a short film of this story. I don't think it really does it justice. I don't think anything does it justice. Occasionally, real life does do it justice. I've thought I've seen this story playing out in real time in this country almost every day for about seven years. Sit back and relax, if relax is the right word for it. For the Greatest Man in the World, by James Thurber. Looking back on it now, from the vantage point of 1940, one can only marvel that it had not happened long before it did. The United States of America had been, ever since Kitty Hawk, blindly constructing the elaborate petard by which sooner or later it must be hoist. It was inevitable that someday there would come roaring out of the skies a national hero of insufficient intelligence, background, and character successfully to endure the mounting orgies of glory prepared for aviators who stayed up for a long time or flew a great distance. Both Lindbergh and Byrd, fortunately for national decorum and international amity, had been gentlemen. So had our other famous aviators. They wore their laurels gracefully, withstood the awful weather of publicity, married excellent women, usually fine family, and quietly retired to private life and the enjoyment of their varying fortunes. No untoward incidents on a worldwide scale marred the perfection of their conduct on the perilous heights of fame. The exception to the rule was, however, bound to occur, and it did. In July 1937, when Jack Pal Smirch, erstwhile mechanics helper, in a small garage in Westfield, Iowa, flew a second-hand, single-motored, Bresthaven Dragonfly 3 monoplane all the way around the world without stopping. Never before in the history of aviation had such a flight as Smirch's even been dreamed of. No one had even taken seriously the weird floating auxiliary gas tanks, invention of the mad New Hampshire professor of astronomy, Dr. Charles Lewis Gresham, upon which Smirch placed full reliance. 
when the garage worker, the slightly built, surly, unprepossessing young man of 22, appeared at Roosevelt Field early in July 1937, slowly chewing a great quid of scrap tobacco, and announced, Nobody ain't seen no flying yet! The newspapers touched briefly and satirically upon his projected 25,000-mile flight. Aeronautical and automotive experts dismissed the idea curtly, implying that it was a hoax, a publicity stunt. The rusty, battered, second-hand plane wouldn't go. The Gresham auxiliary tanks wouldn't work. It was simply a cheap joke. Smirch, however, after calling on a girl in Brooklyn who worked in the flap-folding department of a large paper box factory, a girl whom he later described as his sweet patootie, climbed nonchalantly into his ridiculous plane at dawn of the memorable 7th of July, 1937, spit a curve of tobacco juice into the still air, and took off, carrying with him only a gallon of bootleg gin and six pounds of salami. When the garage boy thundered out over the ocean, the papers were forced to record in all seriousness that a mad, unknown young man, his name was variously misspelled, had actually set out upon a preposterous attempt to span the world in a rickety one-engine contraption, trusting to the long-distance refueling device of a crazy schoolmaster. When nine days later, without having stopped once, the tiny plane appeared above San Francisco Bay, headed for New York, spluttering and choking to be sure, but still magnificently and miraculously aloft, the headlines, which long since had crowded everything else off the front page, even the shooting of the governor of Illinois by the Valetti gang, swelled to unprecedented size, and the news stories began to run to 25 and 30 columns. It was noticeable, however, that the accounts of the epoch-making flight touched rather lightly upon the aviator himself. This was not because the facts about the hero as a man were too meager, but because they were too complete. Reporters, who had been rushed out to Iowa when Smirch's plane was first sighted over the little French coast town of Serly-le-Mer to dig up the story of the great man's life, had promptly discovered that the story of his life could not be printed. His mother, a sullen short-order cook in a shack restaurant on the edge of a tourist's camping ground near Westfield, met all inquiries as to her son with an angry, "'Ah, the hell with him. I hope he drowns.'" His father appeared to be in jail somewhere for stealing spotlights and lap robes from tourists' automobiles. His young brother, a weak-minded lad, had but recently escaped from the Preston, Iowa Reformatory and was already wanted in several western towns for the theft of money order blanks from post offices. These alarming discoveries were still piling up at the very time that Pal Smirch, the greatest hero of the 20th century, blear-eyed, dead for sleep, half-starved, was piloting his crazy junk heap high above the region in which the lamentable story of his private life was being unearthed, headed for New York and a greater glory than any man of his time had ever known. The necessity for printing some account in the papers of the young man's career and personality had led to a remarkable predicament. It was, of course, impossible to reveal the facts, 
for a tremendous popular feeling in favor of the young hero had sprung up like a grass fire when he was halfway across Europe on his flight around the globe. He was therefore described as a modest chap, taciturn, blonde, popular with his friends, popular with girls. The only available snapshot of Smirch, taken at the wheel of a phony automobile in a cheap photo studio at an amusement park, was touched up so that the little vulgarian looked quite handsome. His twisted leer was smoothed into a pleasant smile. The truth was, in this way, kept from the youth's ecstatic compatriots. They did not dream that the Smirch family was despised and feared by its neighbors in the obscure Iowa town, nor that the hero himself, because of numerous unsavory exploits, had come to be regarded in Westfield as a nuisance and a menace. Pal Smirch had, the reporters discovered, once knifed the principal of his high school. Not mortally, to be sure, but he had knifed him. And on another occasion, surprised in the act of an, stealing an altar cloth from a church, he had bashed the sexton over the head with a pot of Easter lilies. For each of these offenses, he had served a sentence in the reformatory. Inwardly, the authorities, both in New York and in Washington, prayed that an understanding providence might, however awful such a thing seemed, bring disaster to the rusty, battered plane and its illustrious pilot, whose unheard-of flight had aroused the civilized world to hosannas of hysterical praise. The authorities were convinced that the character of the renowned aviator was such that the limelight of adulation was bound to reveal him to all the world as a congenital hooligan, mentally and morally unequipped to cope with his own prodigious fame. I trust, said the Secretary of State at one of the many secret cabinet meetings called to consider the national dilemma, I trust that his mother's prayer will be answered by which he referred to Mrs. Emma Smirch's wish that her son might be drowned. It was, however, too late for that. Smirch had leaped the Atlantic and then the Pacific as if they were mill ponds. At three minutes after two o'clock on the afternoon of July 17, 1937, the garage boy brought his idiotic plane into Roosevelt Field for a perfect three-point landing. It had, of course, been out of the question to arrange a modest little reception for the greatest flyer in the history of the world. He was received at Roosevelt Field with such elaborate and pretentious ceremonies as rocked the world. Fortunately, however, the worn and spent hero promptly swooned, had to be removed bodily from his plane, and was spirited from the field without having opened his mouth once. Thus, he did not jeopardize the dignity of his first reception, a reception illumined by the presence of the Secretaries of War and the Navy, Mayor Michael J. Moriarty of New York, the Premier of Canada, Governors Fanneman, Groves, McFeely, and Critchfield, and a brilliant array of European diplomats. Smirch did not, in fact, come to in time to take part in the gigantic hullabaloo arranged at City Hall for the next day. He was rushed to a secluded nursing home and confined in bed. It was nine days before he was able to get up, or to be more exact, before he was permitted to get up. Meanwhile, the greatest minds in the country in solemn assembly had arranged a secret conference of city, state, and government officials, which Smirch was to attend for the purpose of being instructed in the ethics and behavior of heroism. 
On the day that the little mechanic was finally allowed to get up and dress, and for the first time in two weeks took a great chew of tobacco, he was permitted to receive the newspaper men. This by way of testing him out. Smirch did not wait for questions. Use guys, he said, and the Times man winced. Use guys can tell a cockeyed world that I put it over on Lindbergh, see? Yeah, made an ass at them two frogs. The two frogs was a reference to a pair of gallant French flyers who, in attempting a flight only halfway around the world, had two weeks before unhappily been lost at sea. The Times man was bold enough at this point to sketch out for Smirch the accepted formula for interviews in cases of this kind. He explained that there should be no arrogant statements belittling the achievements of other heroes, particularly heroes of foreign nations. Ah, to hell with that, said Smirch. I did it, see? I did it, and I'm talking about it. And he did talk about it. None of this extraordinary interview was, of course, printed. On the contrary, the newspapers, already under the disciplined direction of a secret directorate created for the occasion and composed of statesmen and editors, gave out to a panting and restless world that Jackie, as he had been arbitrarily nicknamed, would consent to say only that he was very happy and that anyone could have done what he did. My achievement has been, I fear, slightly exaggerated, the Times man's article had him protest with a modest smile. These newspaper stories were kept from the hero, a restriction which did not serve to abate the rising malevolence of his temper. The situation was indeed extremely grave, for Pal Smirch was, as he kept insisting, raring to go. He could not much longer be kept from a nation clamorous to lionize him. It was the most desperate crisis the United States of America had faced since the sinking of the Lusitania. On the afternoon of the 27th of July, Smirch was spirited away to a conference room in which were gathered mayors, governors, government officials, behaviorist psychologists, and editors. He gave them each a limp, moist paw and a brief, unlovely grin. Hiya, he said. When Smirch was seated, the mayor of New York arose and, with obvious pessimism, attempted to explain what he must say and how he must act when presented to the world, ending his talk with a high tribute to the hero's courage and integrity. The mayor was followed by Governor Fanneman of New York, who, after a touching declaration of faith, introduced Cameron Spottiswood, second secretary of the American Embassy in Paris, the gentleman selected to coach Smirch in the amenities of public ceremonies. Sitting in a chair with a soiled yellow tie in his hand and his shirt open at the throat, unshaved, smoking a rolled cigarette, Jack Smirch listened with a leer on his lips. I get you. I get you, he cut in nastily. You want me to act like a softy, huh? You want me to act like that mebbity mebbity baby face Lindbergh, huh? Well, nuts to that, see? Everyone took in his breath sharply. It was a sigh and a hiss. Mr. Lindbergh, began a United States senator, purple with rage, and Mr. Bird, Smirch, who was paring his nails with a jackknife, cut in again. Boyd, he exclaimed, oh, for God's sake, that big... Somebody shut off the blasphemies with a sharp word. A newcomer had entered the word, the room. Everyone stood up except Smirch, who was still busy with his nails 
and he did not even glance up. Mr. Smirch, said someone sternly, the President of the United States. It had been thought that the presence of the chief executive might have a chastening effect on the young hero, and the former had been, thanks to the remarkable cooperation of the press, secretly brought to the obscure conference room. A great, painful silence fell. Smirch looked up, waved a hand at the president. How you coming? he asked, and began rolling a fresh cigarette. The silence deepened. Someone coughed in a strained way. Jeez, it's hot, ain't it? said Smirch. He loosened two more shirt buttons, revealing a hairy chest and the tattooed word Sadie enclosed in a stenciled heart. The great and important men in the room, faced by the most serious crisis in American history, exchanged worried frowns. Nobody seemed to know how to proceed. Come on, come on, said Smirch. Let's get the hell out of here. When do I start cutting in on the parties, huh? And when is there going to be this in it? He rubbed a thumb and forefinger together meaningly. Money, exclaimed a state senator, shocked. Pale, yeah, money, said Pal, flipping his cigarette out of the window, and big money. He began rolling a fresh cigarette. Big money, he repeated, frowning over the rice paper. He tilted back in his chair and leered at each gentleman separately. The leer of an animal that knows its power. The leer of a leopard loose in a bird and dog shop. Ah, oh, for God's sake, let's get someplace where it's cooler, he said. I've been cooped up plenty for three weeks. Smirch stood up and walked over to an open window, where he stood staring down into the street nine floors below. The faint shouting of newsboys floated up to him. He made out his name. Hot dog, he cried, grinning, ecstatic. He leaned out over the sill. You tell them, babies! he shouted down. Hot diggity dog! In the tense little knot of men standing behind him, a quick, mad impulse flared up. An unspoken word of appeal, of command, seemed to ring through the room, yet it was deadly silent. Charles K. L. Brand, secretary to the mayor of New York City, happened to be standing nearest Smirch. He looked inquiringly at the president of the United States. The president, pale, grim, nodded shortly. Brand, a tall, powerfully built man, wants a tackle at Rutgers University, stepped forward, seized the greatest man in the world by his left shoulder and the seat of his pants, and pushed him out the window. My God, he's fallen out the window, cried a quick-witted editor. Get me out of here, cried the president. Several men sprang to his side, and he was hurriedly escorted out of a door toward a side entrance of the building. The editor of the Associated Press took charge, being used to such things. Crisply, he ordered certain men to leave, others to stay. Quickly, he outlined a story which all the papers were to agree on, sent two men to the street to handle that end of the tragedy, commanded a senator to sob, and two congressmen to go to pieces nervously. In a word, he skillfully set the stage for the gigantic task that was to follow, the task of breaking to a grief-stricken world, the sad story of the untimely, accidental death of its most illustrious and spectacular figure. The funeral was, as you know, 
the most elaborate, the finest, the solemnest, and the saddest ever held in the United States of America. The monument in Arlington Cemetery, with its clean white shaft of marble, and the simple device of a tiny plane carved on its base, is a place for pilgrims in deep reverence to visit. The nations of the world paid lofty tributes to little Jackie Smirch, America's greatest hero. At a given hour, there were two minutes of silence throughout the nation. Even the inhabitants of the small, bewildered town of Westfield, Iowa, observed this touching ceremony. Agents of the Department of Justice saw to that. One of them was especially assigned to stand grimly in the doorway of a little shack restaurant on the edge of the tourist's camping ground just outside the town. There, under his stern scrutiny, Mrs. Emma Smirch bowed her head over two hamburger steaks sizzling on her grill, bowed her head and turned away so that the Secret Service man could not see the twisted, strangely familiar leer on her lips. The Greatest Man in the World by James Thurber. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Richard Lewis, birthday boy, as of Thursday the 29th of June anyway. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown as we reach shouting distance of the 1,000-day mark since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can, and then let him go out on bail, and arrest him again. As I mentioned earlier, the next scheduled countdown is Thursday, July 6th. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.